This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose! And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. From around the world, this is the Mutual Audio Network. The following audio drama is rated R and is recommended restricted for anyone under the age of 17. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Sonic Society, the world's largest and longest-running showcase of modern audio drama. I'm Jack Ward, and back here in the Mutual Audio Network with my co-host, David Ald. So we're not going to talk about the spooky garden shed from last week? Back here in the Mutual Audio Network building with my co-host, David Ald. Yes, good morning, everyone. Now, in 2018, famed horror writer Anna Sheridan disappeared, leaving behind only a box of mysterious cassette tapes. So we'll hear what happens in that beginning of the Sheridan tapes. And for our second feature, one of the anthology episodes from Wrong Station with A Walk in the Park. And both features begin right here on the Sonic Society. Rogers brings you fast wireless home internet. Whether home is just outside the city or a nice spot in the country. Wherever your home is, get fast wireless home internet from $59.99 a month. Details at rogers.com. Detective Samuel Bailey, Oslo County Police Department, Homicide Division. Recording on April 1st, 2019 at 1.05pm. Before I get started, there's just 
one thing I need to say. I have absolutely no patience for the unexplained or the things people call unexplainable, supernatural, or paranormal. That's all just a lazy way of saying that the real explanation is too difficult or too horrible for them to accept. I don't have that luxury. My job is to look the facts dead in the face and find an explanation, one that will hold up in a court of law. And the simplest explanation is almost always the right one. There's no place for ghost stories and close encounters in this investigation, or any other. <sighs> Hopefully that explains my outburst when I was assigned the Sheridan case. Sure, that's on my personnel file by now, as if it could get any more problematic. Anna Sheridan, New York Times best-selling author of, you guessed it, Supernatural Horror. Missing for nearly six months now, about the coldest case I've ever seen. People call her the female Stephen King. I haven't read any of his books either, so that's probably true. It's not like I hate her or anything. I'm not one of those people who thinks she's the spawn of Satan or something ridiculous like that. I'm just not interested in her work. At all. Which is entirely irrelevant to my ability to solve this case. It's actually better that way. Given the circumstances of her disappearance and the subject matter of her work, someone with a more vivid imagination might decide she'd, well pierced the veil, so to speak, found a way to the other side, and crossed over. Anna Sheridan is dead, and that's all there is to it. There hasn't been a new lead on her case in more than half a year, and the sign on my door says, Homicide, not mysterious and unexplained disappearances, so... Anna Sheridan is dead, no matter what her fans think. The only questions that matter are who killed her... How and why, and without a body, physical evidence, or any record of her movements prior to October 20th, I don't think any of those answers will come easily, or quickly. What I do have, the only thing I have, are the tapes. Apparently Miss Sheridan started using a cassette recorder to make a kind of personal diary and travelogue. She'd been using a digital recorder, but as far as I can tell, those recordings went missing around 2009. And if she used it as much as she used the tapes, well... Her publisher's probably out a few dozen novels worth of raw material. They've actually been hounding me for the tapes, saying they want to make an audiobook or some kind of podcast out of the recordings before they put out her last novel. Apparently, you have to publish in memoriam very carefully. Too soon and it seems like grave robbing. Too late and everyone's already moved on. I had to tell them more than once that as long as this investigation is ongoing, any literary ambitions will have to wait. Oh god, these things smell of weed. So far as I can tell, they aren't in any kind of order. The tapes are all labeled, but I can't seem to make any sense of Sheridan's filing system. If she even had one. They all have a label with five numbers on them. Maybe a date timestamp, or based on location, or... Really, I can't tell if there's any logic to it at all. This one is the first tape in the first column on the left, but it's labeled 
8784. Only one way to tell, I guess. Jeez, my hands are shaking. The night sky really is beautiful out here. I suppose that's a universal constant. Maybe the only one. No matter how far away from home you are, no matter how different the constellations might look from where you're standing, you can always look up on a clear, dark night and feel like you're about to fall right into it. The terrifying, endless expanse of nothingness. Strange how something so dead can be so beautiful. Then again, I guess it's not. Dead, that is. But one day it will be. One day all the stars will burn out, go dark and silent. At least that's what all the math says. One day everything will be so dark and so cold that no new stars can ever be born. The old ones will blink out one by one like candles going out. And then nothing. Silence. Darkness. Void. I wonder if there will still be ghosts out there when that happens. What happens when the planet is gone? Or will the Earth linger too when it finally dies? A shadow Earth under a black and starless sky. Maybe that's what people mean when they talk about purgatory. Or hell, maybe. But that's just incidental. A passing observation. The night is beautiful everywhere, but especially here. I thought I wouldn't be able to handle mountains again after what happened in Wyoming. But it seems that wound healed faster than I expected it to. Still, I made sure I switched off my phone before I came up here, just in case. And I might have forgotten to tell anyone where I was going. I know, I'm being bad, but they just insist on keeping tabs on me if I told them what I was doing. Besides, I can take care of myself. And this isn't a business trip, after all. I'm just coming up here to clear my head. To relax. Although... No, no. I'll leave it alone. I need to. I mean, I really should just rest. My last book tour was a goddamn nightmare all to itself. Not to mention what I had to go through to write it in the first place. Still... No. Sleep. Need to get some sleep. I can't sleep. I just can't. It's past two in the morning now, and the moon... The moon has set. The night's just about as dark as it's going to get out there. Oh, screw it. I'm walking towards the old mining camp now. Haven't seen much yet, just a few rusted old cans near the trail. Historical litter. If it weren't for the Antiquities Act, I'd pack them out and toss them at home, but they're artifacts now. I wonder what will happen to our garbage once we're history. Plastic doesn't break down like tin or iron. Will it just be left there forever? Our legacy. Look upon our works, ye mighty in despair. <laughs> I wonder how many unread Anna Sheridan paperbacks they'll find in the rubble. 
Here we are. Santa Lucia Consolidated Mine, 1869 to 1901. The town sprang up about half a mile east of here. It was pretty quiet, at least for a mining town back then, even if it did end up burning to the ground. A drunken blacksmith, apparently. Or was it the barkeeper? It might make an interesting story if I ever want to write a western. Yee-haw! No, that isn't me. There's still a lot of old mining equipment around. A couple of tall wooden frames with metal spokes running from top to bottom. They almost look like giant guillotines in the dark. A few tumble-down huts, mostly just foundations. Though there are still a few walls left standing. A cement chimney. That must be all that's left of the foreman's cabin. And one big damn wheel, half buried and broken off its axle. Guess I got here just at the right time. Everything's rusted to hell and falling apart, but nothing's quite gone yet. They sure built this place to last. No magnetic or radio distortions on the scanner. And it's chilly, but not any more than it was on the top of the hill. A little warmer now that I'm under the trees, actually. Damn, I could have sworn I felt something strange about this place when I hiked through this morning. Or maybe it was a different part of the mine. This place is pretty spread out. Hard to tell this late at night, anyway. <sighs> Just me in the dark. Perfect. Guess I'd better get back. Wait. No, that's not right. How did... How did that get behind me? Okay. Um, description. A wide semicircular cave entrance opening in the side of a low hill that I'm sure wasn't here before. It's almost perfectly round, and the cave inside is just a straight shot back into the hill from where it opens up. I can see wooden braces every couple of yards holding the ceiling up. This is definitely the mine. Though I could have sworn it was on the far side of the camp, not the way in. <sighs> Did I get turned around somehow? I'm just going to go back the other way. Oh, you've got to be kidding me. Okay. The cave is still in front of me. I turned around 180 degrees, walked off into the dark, and... And it's still in front of me. And looking back, it's not where it was five seconds ago. Still no change... But there's definitely something going on here. I never let myself get this turned around, especially not at night. So let's try walking backwards. Just keep an eye on it. Oh, I see you. You think I'm still scared of caves, huh? 
You think you can freak me out? I'm Anna Goddamn Sheridan, you old tin pent, and I'm not going to be. Oh! Ow! What the hell was. Oh, great. I'm in the mine now. Perfect. Absolutely perfect. Looking back the way I came in, and. Yeah. No sign of the cave entrance I was just looking at. But I'm sure if I walked that way long enough, I'd find it again. Well, I guess the only way out is through. One more cave, Sheridan. It won't kill you. Probably. One. Two. Three. Four. Five. Six. Seven. Eight. Nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen. God, is this thing ever going to turn? Fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nine. What the hell? Hello? I... I think I'm going to turn around now. Hold on. Where are the walls? Did the cave widen out somewhere? Calm down, Sheridan. Think. You're just going to confuse yourself. The map says the main tunnel ran straight west into the mountain. You have a compass, so just go straight east. Okay, now we're in business. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen. Fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, twenty. No, no, stop. That's not possible. Is the compass broken? Or did I turn to the Whoever, whatever, was in that cave. It definitely has a twisted sense of humor. Don't get me wrong, I like a good practical joke as much as the next person. But if it was just trying to mess with my head, I don't see why it... I listen back to the recording from the cave. For some reason, it cuts out just before... Well, just before things get really weird. I kept walking in the direction the compass said was east. I remembered the main shaft of the mine ran straight west. I must have read it on a plaque or at the visitor center. But thinking back to the map, I'm sure the tunnel didn't go nearly that far into the hill. A few yards, maybe, and then it turned off. But 
Not as far as I went, and definitely not as far as I walked when I turned around and tried going back. No matter how far I walked, I couldn't find the way I came in. I turned left, trying to find the wall of the tunnel. I thought that I could just keep my hand on it and follow it out. I walked for nearly a full five minutes before I gave up on that idea. I know I saw the way out of the mine when I first came in. There wasn't much difference between the darkness outside of the cave and the darkness inside. But there was a difference. When you spend this much time working at night, you learn to recognize those differences. But now, everything around me was absolute lightless black. I've only ever seen it at the bottom of other caves on the few occasions I felt brave enough to turn out my light. No, that's not entirely true. I have seen it once before, in my mind, when I imagine what the night sky would look like without stars. My flashlight was still working. I could see the smooth level stone of the cave floor under my boots. It didn't make any difference which way I looked. It was kind of a cheap flashlight, to be honest. The beam widened and dimmed quickly as it moved away, then disappeared into the dark about 30 feet from where I stood. There was a small rock at my feet, so I picked it up and chucked it as hard as I could down the tunnel. It bounced and clattered against the stone for a long, long time. Then I felt something hit the back of my leg. I nearly jumped out of my skin, spinning around to see a small stone bounce one more time on the cave floor, then come to a stop. No mistaking, it was the rock I'd just thrown. I didn't scream then. I was scared, sure. Terrified, actually. Darkness and complete disorientation doesn't number on the human brain. I would know. But this time, it was a slower, quiet dread. The kind that fills your chest inch by inch until you feel like you can barely breathe through it. I was trapped under the earth in some kind of infinite, repeating loop with no point of reference to ground myself. My flashlight was still on, but sooner or later it would burn out and leave me stranded in that tunnel, in the dark, forever. Or at least however long it took me to die of thirst once I finished what little water I had. For a minute, I wondered if that would really be so bad. It was a fitting way to go, given my, well, everything. Personal and career choices, I guess you'd call them. At least it would be quiet. I didn't mind that I'd be alone. I always expected that to be how I went. So eventually I just kind of accepted it. I switched off my flashlight just to see what it would be like. A preview of my last moments in a way. Knowing doesn't make things any easier, but it does make them a little less frightening. It honestly wasn't so bad. I blinked a couple of times, and once my vision cleared, I don't know why, but I almost felt like crying. It was the purest darkness I'd ever seen. I knew I was still trapped underground. Of course I did. The air was thin and had a dusty, chalky taste. Even so, I felt free, almost like I was floating, even though I could still feel the solid rock beneath my feet. 
Then I started walking. Obviously, I didn't know what direction I was going. I couldn't see my compass in the dark. But it just felt right. Honestly, it felt like I was going on instinct. It was about the only thing I could register at that point. I don't know how long I was walking. I couldn't see my watch, and honestly, I didn't want to. At first, I didn't want to disturb that total darkness. But then I began to feel like if I checked it, or stopped, or gave in to panic, I would never make it out of that endless looping tunnel alive. In the back of my mind, I heard something. No, it was more like I felt it. Like the shape of the words were being pressed into my skin. Not by sight. Not by sight. However long it actually took, it felt like I was hiking for hours. But as I walked, putting one foot in front of the other and just trying to stay on this one thin path to freedom, I started to notice lights. I never saw them appear. I'd just look up every once in a while and there would be another tiny point of light shining from where the cave ceiling should have been. They were all pale and cold, though a few of them had a faint color to them. Blue or red or even orange. Most of them were white, though, and seemed to be a long way away. It took me longer than it should have to realize they were stars, probably because there were so few of them at first. But by the time I realized what they were, they filled the entire sweep of my vision. And when the Milky Way faded into view above me, I almost cried again. Then I stepped into something soft and warm that crunched a little under my boot. I jumped back and switched on my flashlight, horrified that I'd just stepped through some half-rotted thing. That wouldn't be the first time. I breathed a sigh of relief as I realized it was just the remnants of my campfire, still smoldering. My tent was a few feet away, right where I left it, and that's where I'm recording this now. I doubt I'll sleep much tonight. That's okay. I just feel like looking at the stars for a while. Huh. Not what I was expecting. Honestly, I didn't know what to expect. I knew Sheridan was a bit more... imaginative than most, but still. I hope the rest of these tapes aren't just her philosophizing while stoned. I've been to Santa Lucia a few times. It's a pretty big park for this part of the state. Lots of tall tales. And more than a few ghost stories about the mines. One of the rangers told me that the air currents in the tunnels generate a lot of infrasound, which probably accounts for most of them. And given Sheridan was almost certainly high when she recorded this... Yeah, I wouldn't put too much faith in her story. Not that it matters anyway, not to this case. I just wish she'd mentioned the date. I, I have no idea if she recorded this right before she disappeared, or years ago. It is interesting to hear her talk about space, though. I thought she only began dealing with the Ispa people earlier this year. I think it was Dr. Ren... Yeah, Dr. Ren Park. As far as I can tell, he was one of the last people to see her alive, but there wasn't enough of a connection to establish 
any kind of motive. Maybe I should take a second look. This tape shows what I already knew, though. Sheridan lived a somewhat nomadic lifestyle. Moved around a lot. Lived out of a van for most of her life, for some reason. I don't know how much of it is on these tapes, and I don't know how much I'll be able to actually get out of them. But ours is not to question why. Ours is but to digitize and stay the hell out of trouble. I think that's why they really put me on this case. Just something to keep me busy and to... Sam. Yeah? They're ready for you. Great. Thanks, Bill. Hey, no problem. What's it all about, anyway? Commission board, some questions about my last post. Oh. Where was that? I get sure. Oh. Right. Yeah. Oh, hey, Sam, I, I think you're still recording. Oh, right. Let's get this over with. This year, Prime members get holiday deals before anyone else. Which means you're kind of a big deal. The Prime Early Access Sale on October 11th and 12th, only for Prime members. This year, Prime members get holiday deals before anyone else. Which means you're kind of a big deal. The Prime Early Access Sale on October 11th and 12th, only for Prime members. The Sheridan Tapes, Episode 1, The Worlds, Perhaps, of Spirits, starring Aaron Neely Chaconis as Anna Sheridan, Trevor Van Winkle as Sam Bailey, and Jesse Steele as Bill Tyler, with original music by Jesse Hagen, written and produced by Trevor Van Winkle, and made possible by our supporters at patreon.com slash homesteadcorner. Visit homesteadonthecorner.com to view additional content, Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, and connect with us on Twitter and Instagram at Trevor underscore VW. New episodes are released every Friday at 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on all podcasting platforms. I'm Trevor Van Winkle, this is Homestead on the Corner, and you're listening to The Sheridan Tapes. Insurance presents Know Your Clients with Desjardins agent Lena. Lena, your client Monica's son wants to drive her car on weekends. You said I can easily add him as a secondary driver. But Monica said only if he walks a dog and doesn't change the radio presets. That is correct. Switch to a Desjardins insurance agent who gets to know what you really need. Desjardins insurance. Exclusions and conditions apply. This episode is brought to you by RBC. 
Do you have a business idea that'll show the world who's boss? No matter what stage of business you're in, RBC has the tools and experience to help you manage cash flow with ease so you can focus on turning your dream into reality. Discover digital-first solutions, expert advice, and services beyond banking to help you start and grow. Visit www.rbc.com forward slash starting a business. You are my sunshine. Incredible as they seem are not the results of mass hysteria. I only... You may wish to adjust the dial. You are currently tuned into... The Wrong Station. It was a couple of years ago, she tells me. It's still snowing, but it's warmed up and we're both drunk, so when she says, All right, I've got another one. We both light another cigarette and huddle closer together under the heat lamp. And she tells it like this. It was one of those El Nino winters where it's warm the entire season. It was the warmest February I can ever remember living through. But March 1st, We get a real bastard of a storm coming in. Temperature drops down to, well, not too bad. Only minus six or something. Not counting the wind, but cold enough. And it starts to snow like a motherfucker. Shovel the front walk every 20 minutes kind of snow. I'm at a friend's place up near St. Clair. At the time, I was living in a shitty basement down near Bloor and Ossington. And I like the snow. I don't know if I told you that. Usually I hate the winter, but as long as it's snowing... I'm okay. So, it's not that cold, and I've been feeling stir-crazy in my apartment for most of that week, same as anyone does when your ceilings are five and a half feet high and it's below freezing outside. So that night, I decide I'll walk home, snow or no snow. And so I start to walk. It's really a gorgeous night out. It's cold, but there's barely any wind, so it doesn't feel that bad. And the snow's coming down thick. That part of the city... At least back then. I don't know how it is now. But back then it was a poorer part of town. So all the streetlights were the orange ones, you know? Like how you go to a wealthy part of town and they have these bright white city lights. But then you get to an ethnic neighborhood or something and all of a sudden either the city hasn't gotten around to it yet or the local business council isn't rich enough to change things. So all the streetlights are still this yellow-orange color. So they're like that where I am, and the lights are all casting these cones of illumination down towards the ground, and you can see through these beams of light just how thick and heavy the snow is coming down. The sky's light, too. All the snow reflecting the city's light pollution back down onto it, I guess. And the sky looks sort of, uh, you know, that orangey-purple. So I'm walking home, and there's nobody in the streets. Nobody. At the bottom of Oakwood, there's a backlog of buses. 
four or five of them. Half of them are Dufferin buses that I guess got diverted. All of them are practically empty. Everyone's staying in, because of the winter storm. There's barely any cars on the road either. It's just me and the city, and all that snow. I don't know the area well at all, by the way. At least back then. I just moved west from around uh, Greenwood and Danforth. And you know how it is with Bloor Street. Nobody ever goes north of there, right? So as far as I'm concerned, this is all new territory. I do not know the streets. I'm just sort of assuming that if I head east enough, I'll hit Ossington. And if I hit south enough, I'll hit Bloor. But it's a nice night. And I like the snow, so I'm taking my time. Exploring the empty city. I had a good pair of winter boots. And while I'm walking alone, through these streets that I don't really know, I sort of lose track of time. So I'm not really sure how long I've been walking, though it doesn't feel like all that long, when I come to the park. I'd been thinking about heading east another block when I came to it, but it looked like a nice park. So I figured I'd stay walking south along its edge for another little while. It looked like it was pretty big, so I was sort of surprised I'd never heard of it. But, like I said, I'd just moved west. And even now, I'm not going to pretend like I know how things are in that part of town anyway. It seems like my kind of park, though, when I look at it. Big old trees, a path leading off at an angle, no playground or wading pool or shit for the kids. Just trees, you know? There's a certain white noise that heavy snow makes when it lands among the boughs of the trees. I'm sure you can hear it in your head right now. You don't need me to tell you what a soothing sound it is. So I'm walking alongside this park, listening to the snow in the trees, looking for the name of the park the entire time, but there isn't a sign posted anywhere. After a little while, I glance across the street, and I notice something strange, which is that I'm passing the last house, and starting to walk past Parkland on that side as well. It was unexpected, because they both seem like big parks, like maybe they're both part of the same huge park, and I can't think of any park that big in that part of the city, except for maybe High Park, and even I knew at the time that I was way too far east to be in High Park. But, like I said, I like the snow, and I like parks, and I like to explore the city, and I like the sound of snow in the trees, and I know I'll hit Bloor eventually, so I just keep walking. After a couple of minutes, I realize how silent it is. No cars have driven past since I entered the park, and there's no sound of traffic coming through the trees at all. I can't remember ever seeing any parks of this size on maps of the city, and I don't remember anyone ever talking about brown bagging beers in a park north of Bloor either. I think maybe people don't bike through here in the summer because it's full of crackheads or something. It's a thought that makes me start to feel nervous. And, uh, after a little while further, I really start to get freaked out, because I realize how long it's been since I passed an intersection, any intersection, and just how large this park I'm obviously walking through the middle of must be. And I'm starting to get cold. That's when I notice the house. The first one I've seen in about 15 minutes. At first I don't think it's a real house. It looks sort of like a place for historical reenactors. Shabby, built of logs, that sort of thing. In the gloom I can't make out the blue heritage plaque, but I assume it's there somewhere. And weirdly, for that time of the night, and for the weather, there's someone sitting on the porch. As I start to get closer, I see that it's a woman in a dress. And again, it looks like an old-fashioned kind of dress. There's something wrong with her face, though. In the orange streetlights, it runs dark. 
but I see closer up that her nose is bleeding freely, and that a thick, inky stream is running from her nostrils, over her mouth, and down to the collarbone. And I think maybe she's not getting the help she needs because of the storm. So I call to her, is she alright? And the sound of my voice seems to startle her, like... Really startle her. Like it's crazy that someone would be walking past in the middle of the city. And after she pulls herself together, she waves me off and says, no, she's okay. But with head injuries, I feel like you have to be sure. So I come up to the bottom of the stairs leading up to the porch where she's sitting, and I ask her what happened. And she looks away to the side, and she says she fell. And that's when I realize what's going on. This isn't a historical reenactment thing or something. This is someone's house. Maybe they're very conservative or religious. Or if it is a reenactment kind of place, it's one with a fucked up working situation because this woman is obviously a victim of abuse and has obviously just been struck in the face by her abuser. And so, you know, my mom's a social worker, so I go up onto the porch and I crouch down beside her and I say, Hey, you can tell me the truth. And she just stiffens right up in her dress and overcoat, and she tells me she doesn't know what I'm talking about. Well, if somebody doesn't want help, then there's nothing you can do about that. So I stand up and I tell her that nobody has the right to hurt her, and that there are organizations that are set up just to help people like her, and that I know how to put her in touch with these organizations. And I give her my card. And as I'm giving her my card, I hear a noise from inside the house. And the woman goes pale. Paler than she already is from the cold. And she tells me that I should leave. And I look around, and see how far I am from, well, civilization. And so I do what she says. I back down the steps, and I keep heading off into the cold. I make it halfway back down the street when she catches up to me. I want to go, she tells me. I want to leave him behind. And I say, now? And she says, right now. So I say, all right, let's go. She puts her arm through mine, and we start to move. I ask her how far we are from Bloor Street, but she tells me that she doesn't know the roads that well. And a little while later, we hear someone shouting behind us, and she grabs my arm tighter, and we hurry faster. The snow's still falling, but not fast enough to hide our footprints. Not from someone right on our tail. So I keep urging her to run, but the snow's thick and we're both pretty short, and so the going's slow. After a few moments, I think I can hear someone crashing through the woods behind us, and a chill crawls up my spine because a moment later, even through the muffling snow, I start to hear shouting, deranged shouting. Shouting that just keeps creeping up and up the octaves into a pitch that no healthy person ever feels the need to use. And the woman looks at me, and her eyes are wide, like, like I don't know, like a dog's eyes when you take it to the vet. And she says to me, it's my husband. This episode is brought to you by RBC. Do you have a business idea that'll show the world who's boss? No matter what stage of business you're in, RBC has the tools and experience to help you manage cash flow with ease so you can focus on turning your dream into reality. Discover digital-first solutions, expert advice, and services beyond banking to help you start and grow. Visit www.rbc.com forward slash starting a business. Have you ever been truly scared? I mean, the kind of scared where you know you're in danger for your life. And you want to be brave, but what your heart and your brain and your body are doing to respond to the situation are just totally beyond your control. It's like, there's this little capsule in your head, and that's you, or at least the part of you that thinks of itself as you. And this little voice, floating in this little capsule in your head, 
is watching and making notes and judgments and trying to control things, but it doesn't have any grip over anything. It's just this little impotent source of chatter that never ceases to share its irrelevant remarks, but you can barely hear it over the sound of blood thrashing in your ears. Well, that's what it was like when he came out of the trees. I heard, or really I felt, him step into the clearing behind us, and reality turned to smoke in my fingers. When you're faced with something like that, you lose the ability to focus, you lose track of details. It's like the whole world is put through a blurred filter, and you're screwing up your eyes just to try and see straight, but you can't, no matter how hard you try. You're trying to slow your breathing and your heart rate, but they won't be slowed. He comes out of the woods behind us, screaming her name. He's in his shirt sleeves in the snow, and he's a big man, and his face is red, and I can't tell if it's from the cold or if he's drunk. He starts to stride towards us, and he's shouting and swearing at her, and I look at her and she's just gone catatonic. And this whole time, that little voice in that little capsule starts making its little observations. It's telling me things like, Oh, he's probably about six foot one, maybe 220 pounds. At the rate he's moving, he'll probably be here in about eight seconds. That snow he's walking through looks really soft. I wonder what it feels like to have my neck broken. Nonsense like that. It's as though consciousness in a situation like that is just this silly appendage that isn't really worth anything. So the body cuts it off from control because it puts stupid emphasis on useless things. But the program's still running in the background, and after the fact, all you can remember are these silly little notions that you had. And you want to remember more, but all the important memories are too traumatic. So your brain takes them apart and stores the different pieces of them into different cupboards in your head. And one of the things that this weedy voice says is that this is the part where you stand up to him and he goes away. So I step between him and the woman, and I try to think of something to say, but my brain feels overloaded, sluggish, and all I can think of is, leave us alone. And even that doesn't come out right. I try and steady myself, square my chest and shout it, but all I can manage is this small and shaky voice. And that little mind in the little capsule bobbing in my head is filled with contempt for me. The man doesn't even seem to hear me. He doesn't even look at me, he just keeps coming through the snow towards us with his hands that look like they'd just been cutting raw meat. And he's shouting, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to break your neck and leave you out here to get buried in the snow. And I run. I shout at her to run too, and she does, but she's wearing this long dress so she's not able to keep up. And he's fast. I hear a shriek behind me, and I half turn to see that he's tackled her. He rolls her over and forces her face down into the snow and I can hear her sobbing and trying to get her face up so that she can breathe, and he's shouting in her ear while he holds her head down in the snow, calling her a bitch and a whore and telling her he'll kill her. He'll kill her parents and her sisters too if she tries to leave him again. And I take a step back towards them, and I try and shout something, but no sound comes out of my mouth. But he looks up at me, with those bloodshot eyes, and irises that look black in the yellow-orange light. And he gets to his feet, and he starts to come after me. And like I said, he's fast. I run like I've never run before. I don't look back. I can hear him just behind me. I can hear his breath rasping in the cold, and I just run. By now the snow is almost knee-high, and it's hard going. My lungs feel like they're full of battery acid, and I trip and fall down this steep hill and get totally disoriented. At the bottom of the hill I struggle to get up to my feet. I've lost one of my gloves, and my hand is red and burning from the cold. 
I catch a glimpse of him sliding down the hill after me, and I set off running again. I'm on open ground, and I realize that I'm out of the park. I'm running across an intersection, and there's a convenience store right in front of me, still open, even though it's a storm and it's past eleven at night. I collapse against the wall and look back behind me, trying to catch my breath. He's standing across the street from me, still in his shirt sleeves, with his red hands and forearms, and his dark red-rimmed eyes. His breath comes out in thick cones of fog, and his shoulders are pumping up and down with exertion. We look at each other for a long moment, and those dark eyes feel like they're going to swallow me up. I'm trying to find any hint of just anything, any consciousness, compassion, anything that I could latch onto as a signifier of our common humanity. But there's nothing. Maybe, deep in his head somewhere, there's a capsule with a small voice too, bobbing along on a black sea of rage. He reaches into his pocket, and he pulls out a balled-up wad of cloth, and tosses it overhand. It sails through the air between us, unraveling so a strip flutters behind it like the tail of a comet. It arcs over the power lines. First it's white, in the street lights, then dark against the light-polluted sky, then light again in the lantern glow. It lands just in front of me, throwing up a little cloud of powdery snow, which drifts away and resettles. I reach down for the cloth. It's only been on the ground for a second, and a layer of snow has already begun to settle on it. I pick it up. It looks white and black under the yellow sign of the convenience store, but I can see its subtle stripe of cornflower blue, and I can feel from the sticky weight on one end what would be red in better light. It's a strip of his wife's dress, tacky with her blood. I look up again, and he's walking back up the hill. The last thing I see of him is his white shirt disappearing into the shadows under the trees of the park. She flicks her cigarette butt away to fizz out in the snow. That's the end of her story, apparently. So what happened next, I ask her. She says she finds her way home, pours herself a glass of straight vodka, and picks up the phone to call the police. But then she realizes she doesn't know where to send them. She pulls up maps of the area, but she can't find that park. And she calls people who live in the area, but they don't know of any big parks either. And the next day, when the sun's shining on the fresh fallen snow, she retraces her steps to find the convenience store. But across the street from it, there's only a little parkette, with a playing ground and a waiting pool. Kid shit. Couldn't have been more than 50 feet across. So that's it, I say to her. It was all just a dream or something. Yeah, probably, she says. Then she presses something into my hands and shakes the snow from her hair and opens the door. A burst of warm air and music wafts out of the bar as she disappears back inside. I look down at what she's handed me. It's a piece of cloth, and in the yellow glare of the street lights, it looks like it's black and white. The Wrong Station is created and produced by Alexander Saxton and Anthony Botello, featuring Anthony Botello, with music composed by Alon Zitrin and original artwork by Jenny Henderson. This week's episode, A Walk in the Park, was written by Alexander Saxton. Tune in every Thursday for full-length episodes. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and iTunes. And leave a review on iTunes. 
You can email us at therongstation at gmail.com. Until next time, thank you for listening. And that's this week's show. Please check the show notes and links on sonicsociety.org for both of our shows this week. And please send us a note on the tweets, Sonic Society or David Alt. Until next week, I'm David Alt. And I'm Jack Ward. See you then. Changes everything. The organic and the digital. His head, it's metal. Your friend Alvin the Chipmunk is a non-stop recording hard drive. The ability to record every human sense. Sight, sound, even thought. Everything anyone could ever see or hear gets recorded. Any human being could be a spy. This chip will allow us to know everything, as will the people we sell it to. They'll see all the data. Don't you get it? There is no one that can stop us. Hey, Rockstar. The Rapscallion Agency, a new audio drama from the creators of the Leviathan Chronicles, follows two of its youngest characters, Lizette and Clurican, who move to Paris. So, Clurican is in Paris. Welcome to Paris. Mm-hmm.
and find themselves entangled in a sinister plot to control the world's most sensitive information. I can take them out. I can do with three of them. Now there's two. We've got to get out of here. No one is going anywhere. Leviathan Audio presents The Rapscallion Agency, available November 1st. Subscribe now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.